0: This podcast was recorded during the COVID 19 pandemic of 2020. One, two,
1: three, four. Do you ever get tired
0: of being Beatles? I play uh, the bass and I play the notes. I play a guitar and I too play a guitar.
1: Uh, Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. <laughs>
0: go, do Very excited, yeah. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's oh, a way. Just take like, we'll we'll oh, uh,
1: The The that John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we wanted. We're going to do what we wanted. If do, do you think <laughs> it was cool, keep hitting
0: it, don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that
1: one
0: that one. Market Fab. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo record. The podcast website is romycast.com. That's R O M Y RomyCast, cast, romycast.com. One word. You can find out more information at that website about me and find each and every episode that we've done so far. And also if you see fit, you could make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. Uh, I endeavor to make a living as a content creator in a world that uh, doesn't like (laughs) to pay for content very much. So any donation is much appreciated. Just click on the donate button. uh, And also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. Thank you very much for that. It really does make a difference uh, if you subscribe. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle The. Underscore Romycast. The underscore Romycast. Happy to interact there on Twitter or Insta if you prefer. And there is also a Facebook group. Uh, If you'd like to join, do a search on Facebook for the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Ask to join and I will sort that out for you. We're getting close to uh, 50 members. Why don't you be the next one? My guest today is musician, singer, and songwriter Julian Taylor. As this podcast is being recorded, Julian is killing it with his newest record, The Ridge. It's a folky, rich, complex, and... Quite honestly, a beautiful record. Uh, get comfortable, pour yourself a glass of whatever you like to sip, and close your eyes and disappear into this great, great record. I heard it for the first time in the summer when a musician buddy of mine said, hey, you got to listen to this. It's the best album I've heard in ages, and it really is good. If you haven't already, uh, as this is being recorded you want to pay attention to the record because the album is 24th on the Canadian album chart. Uh, It is on the first round of ballots for next year's Grammys, the 2021 Grammys, under the category of Best Americana Album. Again, you got to check it out, The Ridge by Julian Taylor. Now, Julian is one of these guys, he's uh, the overnight sensation who's been at it for 20 years. Uh, he has a great back catalog you can check out on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you stream music. He fronted a band called Staggered Crossing back in the early 2000s. That band uh, put out some albums. They split in 2000. 2007 and he's since put out songs and albums as both a solo artist and with the Julian Taylor band. I'd say that on his newest record he's a folk guy, but on his other records he's also a soul guy, a funk guy, A rock guy. He's a really eclectic musician and a troubadour. You can find out about all things Julian Taylor by visiting his website, juliantaylormusic.ca. That's juliantaylormusic.ca. He's on Twitter at JTaylorBand and Facebook if you search under Julian Taylor Musician. So, Julian Taylor, songwriter, singer, force of nature, and today... Paul McCartney fan. Julian, thank you so much for joining me to talk about a great record.
1: I appreciate the opportunity, Paul. It's an honor. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, what are your earliest memories of the Beatles?
1: My earliest memories of the Beatles were, you know, probably Abbey Road would be the first sort of thing that I was um, privy to because my dad had the record. My, my, My folks weren't huge rock and roll fans. But Abbey Road certainly was one that crossed over into our realm. I mean, my dad liked Andre Crouch, and uh, he plays classical music on the piano, and my mom liked Motown. So it was interesting, because when that record sort of came down the pipe for us, it was just the, the, uh, the back half of Side 2 that really got me as a child. You know, the fast songs, Mean Mr. Mustard Man, that kind of stuff, really poppy, uh, but really fun. Less... Um, melancholy, less political, just silly.
0: Was it ever? Did you ever hear it, and did it directly affect you in terms of, wow, that sounds cool, I'd like to do that? Not until a little later,
1: when I was around 12 years old, did I ever sort of feel that way, and learning, you know, let it be on the piano, things like that. When I finally figured out what they were doing,
0: songwriter-wise, that's when it hit me. So Julian, you have chosen to go through track by track Paul McCartney's huge solo record, Band on the Run. Why did you pick this one?
1: It's my favorite. Well, actually, I like Ram, but this one I've, I've, I've gotten to know a little bit better. Um, certainly, it was a huge commercial success. Um, the title track, I love the intro and it sort of tricked me and tricked everybody the way it, the way it went and i just thought it was so cool he does it again sort of you know um on later records but this being his third record with
0: wings and stuff like that it just i think they were in in, in, a, in a groove he just loves to do that that's a, a great point and that, that'll come up during our conversation but he he almost he does so many songs where it's like a sweet of three different types to it. Do you ever dabble with that thing yourself?
1: I have tried. I'm really no good at it yet (laughs) um, because he's the master. I mean, there's the the comparison to what happens with side two of Abbey Road. That's exactly what happens. It's like suites of pop music and it's really interesting how they can all flow together. I I often wonder if he's written these songs and then thought, oh, you know, this one I can't finish, so I'm going to,
0: you know, mix and match it with this one. You know what I mean? Oh, the, so many. There's, a, I mean, you you raised Band in the Run. Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey is like that on the Ram mm-hmm. album. Um, you know, you almost have different songs. You know, on this Band in the Run album, um, Picasso's Last Words is another, yeah, for another sure another one like that all right so before we get into it I just want to give some context for the album it was the fifth album by McCartney after the breakup of the Beatles it came after Red Rose Speedway and before Venus and Mars and he's a bit of a mixed bag at this point his albums all sell and they sell extremely well in the millions but he doesn't get a lot of love from rock critics of the day who held a lot of sway back then guys who wrote for Rolling Stone Melody Maker uh, all the big rock papers and his solo career so it's started promisingly, certainly from a sales perspective. He had McCartney, which sort of announced the breakup of the Beatles, came out in April of 1970, topped the Billboard charts in the U.S. for three weeks, quickly sold over a million. Critically, didn't fare so well. Uh, One review of the day, a guy named Richard Williams, well-known music writer of the time for Melody Makers said, with this record, McCartney's debt to George Martin becomes increasingly clear. Uh, mm. Williams found sheer banality in all the tracks, save for maybe "I'm Amazed," and described "Man, We Was Lonely" as the worst example of his music hall side. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. <laughs> at least he's Paul McCartney. <laughs> he's Paul McCartney. For... So then that's followed by "Ram" in 1971, which, in hindsight, people look at and say this may be. His best solo record, but uh, again, at the time it, it sold a lot, uh, but another Rolling Stone review, a guy named John Landau uh, called Ram incredibly inconsequential and monumentally irrelevant. Hmm. Uh, And then he turned it around and said it it exposes that McCartney benefited immensely from his collaboration with the Beatles, particularly John John Lennon. So, again, uh, sells well, but the critics don't love it. Likewise for Wings Wildlife in December of 71. That didn't even crack the top 10 in the UK and got no higher than 10 in the USA. Comes back in 1973 with Red Rose Speedway. It went to number one in the USA largely on the strength of that number one single My Love Mm. uh, hit number five in the UK charts but again critically poor reviews Uh, Village Voice uh, said uh, McCartney's reliance on aimless whimsy uh, uh, quite possibly the worst album ever made by a rock and roller of the first rank. Wow. Yeah. So he's really getting it. And and That sets the stage for, without question, Band on the Run. And then the way that all kicks off, 1973 is a pretty good year for him. Uh, He starts the year off taping a TV special, James Paul McCartney, that is going to promote Red Rose Speedway. Mm. Uh, Wings are busy. Uh, They did 16 shows over 15 days in the UK, uh, and then in July, a few more dates. Just after that mini tour, they head to Scotland for rehearsals to prepare for the recording of what was to become Band on the Run, and they decided Mm -hmm. to do it in Lagos, Nigeria. Interesting place to do it, eh? Yeah, well, as the story goes, they wanted to go someplace warm, and EMI being a big company with studios all over the world, McCartney sat down and literally looked through the company directory and said, ah, right. Lagos, it's, you know, it's in Africa that's got to be warm this time of year. Uh, it'll be great. We'll go there. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it sounds like it was great. <laughs> it sounded great. Uh, what he didn't know was that the country was in the midst of some internal strife. Uh, so he was, he was not heading to a place that was going to be as relaxed Peaceful, as he yeah. thought. Yeah. Uh, But they get set to go. Start of Argus, a week before they're going to go, there was apparently an argument during rehearsals regarding Henry McCullough not wanting to play a guitar part a certain way. Uh, So then a day before they were supposed to leave, he leaves and the drummer, Denny Sywell, also quits. And uh, here's McCartney's quote from an interview. He says, A couple of the guys, McCullough and Sywell, left the band the night before we went to Lagos to make the record. This was like a bombshell. You can imagine me getting off that phone call and it was like, ah, okay, try to hold your nerve, keep it together. What do we do now? Ah, sought it. We're going. And at that moment, it was one of those, I'll show you, I'll make the best album I've ever made now. I'll put so much effort into it because I just want to prove that we didn't need you guys. So off they go. On August 9th for Lagos, Paul, Linda, Denny Lane, they stay there for six weeks recording at a fairly leisurely pace. Former Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich is along doing it. Uh, They Mm -hmm. make the best of this little studio. It's a single eight-track studio, reel-to-reel machine. And I can't imagine recording a record for six weeks. That's amazing. <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny when you say that. I'd like to get your take on it because uh, I did a show with Stephen Stanley where he talked about Magical Mystery Tour, and I talked about the you know seventy hours to record um, Strawberry Fields Forever. I think it was. And he oh my was, god! He was so. Tell me what it's like. I mean, what's your record recording schedule if it's not six weeks? I, it's more like.
1: If a week is lucky, I mean, seriously, I mean, we're in a studio for a couple of days and we're we're supposed to bang out this amazing uh, piece of work. It's really, really stressful because we're under time constraints. The, the clock is ticking. Nobody's got a lot of funds to record the record in the first place. And uh, yeah, I mean, six weeks to record a record must have cost a fortune and... If that's all you're doing, I don't, I, it's not surprising
0: that the record sounds as good as it is. Well, he spends, he, there's, he spends six weeks in Lagos, and they record basic tracks. Then they jet back to the UK, and on September the 23rd, they head into George Martin's Air Studios in mm-hmm. London. So they now have 16-track recording instead of eight, and they do overdubs and orchestrations uh, including you know, the brilliant orchestrations of Tony Visconti that were on there to embellish it. They do final mixing at EMI Studios and Kingsway Studios. Final lacquers for the LP were cut on November 8th. Album was in shops the first week of December in the U.S. and in the U.K. All into all of that, which maybe I'll go into later, uh, McCartney got into a confrontation with Fila Cootie. Big Mm, Afrobeat star. One Uh, of my favorites. Yeah, uh, I guess Fela felt as though uh, he suspected McCartney was coming to Lagos to steal sort of African rhythms and production methods and and not credit them. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they had a confrontation about that. He also got robbed. Uh, had, yes, I, yeah, yeah Knife the, Point. Yeah, at Knife Point, had all the demo cassettes taken from him. Uh, thought he was having a heart attack at one point. So there was a lot of stuff going on, some adversity, I think we can say, it, which makes me want to ask, can you think of one of your records or even just a song that was born of adversity of one type or another and maybe added something to that song or record that otherwise wouldn't have been there?
1: I have a record called Blank Tape Levy, and that record was completely lifted, it was stolen. Um, I had recorded it once, and um, we, we recorded it down at Carlaw and Queen, and my friend's studio got broken into. Uh, they didn't know they were taking, but they took the hard drive that all of the, the entire record was on. So I actually had to call all the musicians back. Everybody was really super cool about it. I paid them a smaller fee, The studio was cool about it, and I had to re-record the entire record. I've never heard what it actually sounded like the first time around. And I know we had this magic spark going for it. I mean, it it, it sounded good later, uh, but the first time you do it, 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 I I wish I could hear that, because I think we had something special. Um, I didn't necessarily change much, uh, but I named the record Blank Tape Levy on purpose because... um, it describes, you know, that sort of theft.
0: I was gonna ask you, Julian, because I listened to a bunch of your stuff and I listened to Blank Tape Levy yesterday uh, for the second mm-hmm. time. And it's a heavier sounding, there's more, to me, a heavier sounding in terms of electric guitar. Was there maybe a little bit of anger on that? Because you had to do it all over again. Oh yeah. <laughs> I
1: would agree with that. It was there was a lot of angst in that session, a lot of frustration. <laughs> but turned out to be a good record. I think so. I mean, I wish I could hear. I wish I could hear the first version of it. I wish I could. I think it had like a little bit more groove and flow to it, rather than this urgency that it has. Yeah,
0: but but I guess my point being, sometimes maybe that that angst or that adversity like mccartney had doing band on the run clearly with guys quitting getting robbed uh, losing the tapes uh Mm -hmm. you know contributed whatever that was it made it a special record so maybe that helped with that one for you (laughs) i'll take it (laughs) (laughs) all right let's start the album we're going to go old school i'll take the vinyl out of the jacket get it on the turntable and side one track run track one is band on the run
1: That is the track that I think hooks everybody, it hooked me. It was the first real Wings song that I actually heard. Uh, and like I had mentioned earlier, the intro just got me. It's like that, it's really funky, it's got some, some sort of rock vibe to it too. And you know, the song
0: is, feels like somebody w- wants to be free. McCartney says uh, in an interview with Clash Music in 2010, said it was symbolic. If we ever get out of here, all I need is a pint today. And the Beatles, we'd started off as just kids who loved our music, wanted to earn a bob or two so we could get a guitar and a nice car. Very simple ambitions at first, but then, you know, as it went on, it became business meetings and all that. So there was this feeling of if we ever get out of here. So you're right on the, mo- I-, I think the whole album is sort of a mm-hmm, I do something to do with freedom.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's about. Uh, I think he was probably trying to escape the critics as well. Um, from what what I've heard you read about previous records and how they were received, I think that you know the the trials and tribulations of what was going on during the recording was probably a, a, a huge relief for him to get
0: this out. Probably a huge relief that people like rock radio just went, yes, this is the song. And, and you've referred to this, I mean, this was the classic McCartney suite of tunes stitched together, so you have Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, Picasso's last words, the medley that closes out Red Rose Speedway. Um, what's your favorite part of this song?
1: Oh, it's, I th- it's the intro. I wish that the intro was the song. But then I realized that, you know, when he, when he moves into the, like the great acoustic guitar playing and, and that really simple uh, chord structure uh, and the story begins, it's like, oh. And it taught me something about my own writing is that sometimes it's okay to put in like this hook and then take it away from people because they'll go back. There's a really interesting thing about a really great song and kids are the best at it because they can't even listen to a whole song. They'll always... Go back to the beginning of the song because I want to hear it again before it's even over. This is that type of song, because I want to hear the intro again all the time. If I ever get out of here.
0: And the guitar riff. Yeah, how about it's how amazing. about the big orchestra? like that that's my favorite part of the song is when that big I think it's for five bars and that big mm-hmm. fifty piece orchestra comes in with I guess sort of the bridge or the join or that—that's the hair on the back of the neck that gets you. Yeah, for me. Nice. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. An orchestra will do that. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever worked with a big one like that?
1: No, I have never done it. Um, my my uncle has though. So.
0: I, I, I imagine it would be quite a thing,
1: to It's pro-
0: it's definitely. Uh... It was the uh, Bow Arts Orchestra, and that bridge was orchestrated by a young superstar producer of the time. You may have heard of him. His name is Tony Visconti. Uh, oh yeah, I know who. Who that. later on found fame as Bowie's producer. David Bowie worked with T Rex, and uh, he scored that five bar and all the orchestrations on Band on the Run. On, on Just just a fantastic, uh, fantastic song. And uh, I love, it sounds like you're a guy who's listened to music with little kids lately. Play that part again, Dad, play that part again. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely am.
1: And you know what? It's funny uh, because I'm like kind of annoyed by it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we'll move on to cut two just a great start to this album. You go band on the run, great starting track, and then into cut to. Uh, The song was entirely cut at air studios in London on October 3rd. Yeah. Yeah, Nothing. What are your thoughts? on Yeah, Yeah. What do you think of jet?
1: Big tune. Um, it sort of reminds me of uh, "Live and Let Die." It's like it's, it's it's punchier than anything else on the record, though. No? I think so.
0: Yeah, it would have to be. Um, I mean, it's a it's, it's a, a balls out rock and roll.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that. I wish I could have seen it live. I mean, I guess I still could, but let's hope that uh, he hangs on <laughs> to, until <laughs> live music comes back.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'll double cross my fingers with you on that one. But this this particular track is is the second single, no? I, I it was the uh, well the first single released off the album, but it wasn't originally on the album. Was Helen Wheels? Oh, uh, and then I didn't know. And that. then th- this was the first single taken off the album, top ten hit in the U.S. and in the U.K. Okay, I thought I thought they led with "Band on the Run." Uh, "Band on the Run" was the second single or third single, if you want, that was taken off the album. Um, and it was interesting because McCartney wanted to do like the old Beatles days, where the, the Beatles typically they did not put singles on records per se. You know, if you think back uh, and and look at the way they did it. During the Beatles career, okay, so you can go um, Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, She Loves You, From Me to You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Hey Jude, none of those were on a proper album. They were all just singles. I didn't know that. That's the way, whether it was a UK thing or whether it was a Beatles thing, that's the way they did it. So originally, McCartney did not want to release a single from this album. And it was a guy named Al Corey from Capitol Records in the US who said, look... Helen Wheels is really doing well put Mm. it on the record and he wouldn't do it he changed he thought about it over uh, he, he slept on it Uh, And then he quoted back the next day because Al Corey said, look, we did this with Pink Floyd. You know, we we took a single off an album, put it out as a single and they sold an extra couple of hundred thousand copies of the album. So McCartney said, okay. So they did that. Mm -hmm. And then because that was so successful, he went on to release Jet and Band on the Run as singles. So uh, yeah, Jet Jet was so... Helen Wheels technically wasn't from the album when it got released. It was a single was it recorded before the record then? Helen, we is it a totally d- d- different session? Because I,
1: I was no aware same, of that. Sessions.
0: Uh, it, same, same sessions. Same sessions, and it was uh, it was recorded to be a single. Oh, okay. Uh, and then they, they plucked Jad off. Uh, what do you think of the sax part on uh, on Jet? To me, that really makes it. Well, I'm a
1: I'm, I'm a big sax guy. You know, um, I love a good sax solo, and um, I, th- I think that comes from my jazz upbringing. And I think that I don't really hear a lot of... Um, the only time you hear uh, horns in their kind of music is, is very orchestrated stuff. You never hear anything that's like immediate and punchy like that. It's almost like they use the horns as an orchestra in some of the, the music that they put out, but not this time, and I do do it uh,
0: It's a guy named Howie Casey uh, who used to be in a band called Derry and the Seniors back in the Beatles' Liverpool days, and he plays sax sure. on here, yeah. Jerry and the Seniors? Uh, Dairy and the Seniors. Oh, Derry, Yeah, Derry, Derry and the Seniors. And, <laughs> and then, Jerry and the Seniors, was, was that? Yeah. Right. It was Dairy and the Seniors, and then he also, so he was brought in here, an old buddy of McCartney's, and he plays sax on on this cut, also on Mrs. Vanderbilt, and a beautiful sax Bluebird. solo on, Yep, yeah, the next track we're going to oh. talk about. That is Bluebird. Late at night
1: when the wind is still I'll come flying through your door, and you'll know what love is for. I'm a, bluebird, I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, bluebird. I. You know what? To be honest, um, this might be my favorite track on the record, yes, and, and. uh it's just so visceral in a way. It, it, it's, it's so different from the rest of the record. It's like a really beautiful uh, love song. And it's the one that pulls me in the most. And, and it's also, I think, for me, the prettiest melody on the record.
0: I, I'm with you. It's my favorite song on the, on the album. I just think it's oh, cool. everything's beautiful about it. Um, <laughs> the, the vocals, the percussion... Um, I, I did want to ask you about the sort of stacked harmonies at the end. you know, bluebird, bluebird, bluebird yeah. um, it, it sounds like it's all him. I'm never sure whether the really high one is him or Denny Lane. <laughs>
1: I, I've always thought it was him, to be honest. I don't know the answer to that. Um, it's probably, you could probably uncover that somewhere, but they didn't
0: have that in the credits, I, I mean. I dug around looking for a definitive answer and I couldn't find one, but it, it's, whatever it is, I just love the, what it brings to it.
1: It's, I think it's him.
0: If it was someone else, you would have found it, because that person would have been upset that they got left out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, I mean, it's it's and it's another song to your earlier point, Julian, or to me it is. Is it a song about escape and freedom?
1: Like we talked about before, um, I think this one doesn't sort of bring to mind escape. By the way, uh, for me, this one, freedom, yes, and I, I think they're different things. I think that in this particular song, because of its uh, softness, um, there's this air of the natural world that I I believe he's referring to. Whereas I think escapism is... How do I word this? Um, Okay, for instance, when you feel freedom, you have this ability to do whatever you want. When you're thinking about escapism, you're trying to get to the place where you can do whatever you want. Does that make sense? So in, the, in, in band, band on the Run, I feel escapism, like that particular song, um, and, and, and freedom at the same time. But in this particular instance, I don't. I feel like this is about being in a place of freedom. I don't know if it makes sense.
0: I know It does. Um, and I'm just trying to think of I mean, what was going on in, in his life at that time. I do know one significant thing that happened that may have contributed to that, although it's more vindication. But uh, going back through the whole Beatles story, one of the big reasons they split up was he wanted nothing to do with Alan Klein who was mm-hmm. the guy who mm-hmm. would who uh, infamously come in to take over their affairs and the other 3 Beatles George Harrison, John Lennon, Ringo Starr were all sort of Klein guys for lack of a better description. And as time went on, McCartney was proven to be right and it was right around the time just before he went to record this album that the other 3 Beatles mm-hmm. severed their relationship with Klein. Who was Apple Music, right? oh, sorry Apple Yeah, Apple and I wonder if there was a feeling of relief. Yeah, I was right after all, I wasn't wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, being in a situation with you know management and, and people that are uh, in control of your career that doesn't give you that sort of good feeling uh, that it's moving in the right direction or even being uh, managed properly is a horrible feeling. Do you do any of those sort of stacked
0: vocal harmonies?
1: I do it a lot, actually. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the, the record where Desert Star by Julian Taylor Band, it, it's done a lot. Uh, the last two records, I decided to leave it completely blank. I mean, The Ridge, I don't do it at no. all. No,
0: no. And all. we'll get to The Ridge, which is just a spectacular piece of work. Congratulations.
1: Thank you, Paul. Uh, Avalanche by Julian Taylor Band, I, left at, I didn't do it there uh, either. Um, but in earlier stuff like Blank Tape Levy, you'll find overdubs. Um, me doing them myself. Some other people doing some stuff. But yeah, I, I, I've, the last two records, I've cleared away from it because I want people. I wanted people to really focus on the lyrics, like um, especially the lyrics. And I wanted to be upfront and, and personal with them. And it's hard to, 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 to imagine three people speaking to you at
0: the same time julian is there somebody whose voice for example you know when you hear john lennon paul mccartney george harrison it's it's instantly it's it their voices just they come together like coffee and cream uh likewise with uh, I'm trying to think of some other great harm you know the beach boys are an obvious example is there somebody who you've uh, i know you've done some some records with guest appearances and guest vocalists, but is there somebody who you've harmonized with where you've had that, oh my, this just sounds so good together. Have you met that person yet?
1: Yeah, I've met uh, those people, a lot of them actually. Um, The first person would have been uh, my friend, Daryl O'Day. Uh, He was uh, the multi-instrumentalist in Staggered Crossing. And our voices blended together really well. Uh, ben Spivak was my old roommate, and we played in a cover band until he was in the. He left and went to the band Magic with, um, and he and I, our voices blended. Jeremy Elliott, who's the drummer of Stegger Crossing, um, when we blended with Daryl or and or Ben, it would work really well. Doesn't necessarily. We need sort of the three part for that to really work because he's got a really sort of thin uh, sounding voice, and, and the other two have like a a reed sounding voice, like a, a clarinet or. A, Something like that, um, and then on the Ridge record, the girls from Dalla appear on that record, and uh, that that I think sounds pretty good.
0: It, it, the interesting thing about Bluebird is um, you know going back to the the confrontation with Fila Kuti, uh This is the only song to me where you can really hear that an, an African rhythm influence, um, particularly with the percussion. Uh, you know mm. I've, I've, and uh the weird thing is they didn't record that part of it in lagos uh it was an old buddy of his uh named remy kabaka who came in session mm. guy in london and uh remy kabaka came in and he played all the percussion on bluebird mm-hmm. and as irony would have it he's actually from lagos so he, no kidding. So he's from Lagos, but he didn't work with them in Lagos. He worked with them back in <laughs> back in London. But, but I mean, to, to me, this opens up a great subject that I want to ask you about because it involves, in a sense, the use by McCartney of differing musical styles. Uh, you know, be they African, uh, be they uh, New Orleans, which he does later on, New Orleans jazz, On you hear a little bit of that on uh, Venus and Mars. He's influenced by different styles. So he's done jazz, he's done electronic, he's written a symphony, He's been influenced by black vocal groups like the Shirelles, rockabilly Mm -hmm. guys like Carl Perkins. Now, for you, Avalanche from 2019, I hear a little bit of Stevie Wonder in the opening cut time. That's true. I hear Prince in Never Gonna Give You Up from the Tech Noir album. Uh, mm-hmm. And then on your solo record, The Ridge, I said to you uh, when we were speaking earlier, I hear a real beautiful James Taylor, close mic, intimate, sort of circa one-man dog. That's what I hear, but you tell me what you hear when you listen back to those songs. What influences, am I, am I off base on those or do you hear that too? You're not off base at all. Um, I love...
1: Stevie Wonder, and it would be hard not to be influenced by him because I grew up with his music um, in my household uh, when I was a kid. And uh, I think that his lyrics are very uh, poignant and powerful. The, the, the thing that I've always tried to um, accomplish is when I'm writing the song, follow the song. The song will guide me and tell me what it needs. I've always felt that way. Um, and so, if, and the other thing is like when I was learning how to produce records with my friend Jay Bennett, who unfortunately passed away a little while ago, but he, he was in the band Wilco and helped them a lot. And he came up and produced Tiger Crossing. And one of the things he said to me was look, there's a couple of things that you need to know in producing records. Number one, don't be shy or worried about actually uh, quoting influencers or, or trying to sound like someone else because it's actually impossible to. So if you want to try to sound like Prince, go for it. You're never going to do it. He's Prince and you're Julian Taylor.
0: He was right. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a fantastic approach. And uh, that's another guy who, you know, I listened to some of your cuts and I mean, there's not a funk soul guy in the world who I don't think could fail to have been influenced by the greatest, one of the greatest of them all, some would say the greatest Prince. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And when
1: it came it comes to folk music, I mean, I, was, I, I started playing acoustic guitar when I was, you know, 10, 11, and folk music was a huge thing. You know, James Taylor, Crosby, Steele's Nash, um, Jim Crochet. I love Bill Withers, which is one of the reasons, like, that influence, even from the, the vocal approach on, say, The Ridge and Avalanche are the same. It's like, I wanted it right up front. And if you listen to, like, Bill Withers songs, it's like you can
0: feel his, his breath on your face. Yes, yes, and I want to ask you about the engineering of the ridge when we get to that because it it sounds to me like you are right up to that mic. Am I am I right? Like it sounds really close miked. It's very close miked, and I'm not loud at
1: all. I'm not singing like out like I would on say Julian Taylor band records. I'm almost talking.
0: Oh, you're you're almost yeah. You're whispering on a couple. Of, like it's it. I, yeah. I I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, I was talking to a musical colleague yesterday. He said, best album I've heard this summer. It's called The Ridge. It's out now. Uh, and it is just, it's. I, I've got my, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm just, okay. dear listener, uh, if you take one thing away from this, go back and listen to Band on the Run again and listen to uh, The Ridge. Beautiful record. Uh, so let's go to cut number four. Uh, and uh, as a kid, I got to be honest, this was sometimes a skip over. Now- you don't
1: money, you don't, you don't even the time, but you don't mind. Ho. Hey ho. No, oh. I liked it. I liked the hey Hey ho, hey ho
0: hey ho. <laughs> ho. ho, hey, hey ho. ho, yeah I liked great it. Great hook, great <laughs> hook
1: And you know what? Here's the hey thing ho. Is that song has when probably be like helped the Lumineers
0: uh, <laughs> More than any other band <laughs> on the planet <laughs> <laughs> it's, and the opening sort of bit—it's an old catchphrase from an English music hall performer, a guy named Charlie Chester, and his catchphrase was "Down in the jungle, living in a tent, better than a bungalow, no rent." Uh, and McCartney changed it to "Down in the jungle, living in a tent—you don't use money, you don't pay rent." You know, ho, hey ho, <laughs> hey
1: ho, ho, hey ho. Now all I can
0: think about is the Lumineers. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but coming back to our theme, do you get do you yes. get freedom in this one? You know, you don't even have the time, but you don't mind, and... uh... Oh,
1: yeah, big time, big time. This one actually, uh, in my personal opinion, other than maybe uh, Band on the Run and Picasso's Last Words, uh,
0: the biggest sense of freedom on those three tracks, in my personal opinion. Great Howie Casey sax solo on this one as well. Yeah, beautiful. Chimes in with that. This is the first time that he really works that sax, eh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bluebird's very... It's beautiful, but it's it's. You're right. He's he's working it in in Mrs. Vanderbilt. If
1: you're gonna get that kind of response out of a, a an instrument like that,
0: it's a lot of uh, diaphragm. <laughs> and it was uh, they had a great time recording it, which you can hear all the laughter at the end. Uh, and if that was a as many of these kind of moments in a studio are, which you would be able to attest to, uh, they just they started laughing uh, because they needed something at the end and. Nothing will get you laughing more than listening to other people laughing. And uh, McCartney says, it started <laughs> off in Africa. We were doing sort of daft laughs at the end. We got back and eventually overdubbed this crowd of people who were laughing. And it was great listening to the tapes, trying to select a little bit of laughter we'd use, because most of it was us, and we needed some more to cushion it up. So we got a whole room full of people laughing in stereo. And we're getting into and tagged it on the end. Um, here's a weird one about it. McCartney had never played the song live until a free concert in 2008, so many years later, in Kiev, Ukraine. And the reason that he played it live was because the promoter had run a poll on the web saying, what song, if you could pick one, do you want to hear McCartney play? And the number one song in the poll was was Miss Yeah, Vanderbilt? Mrs. Vanderbilt. That's so odd. And it's been a, a fairly regular fixture since then. So, so this raises a question: to, You, as an artist, are you ever surprised by what resonates with fans versus what you thought would resonate? Because clearly, he didn't think that was a song that was resonate because he didn't play it live and here here it was number one in the poll. Do you? Have, they're tough to figure out sometimes. The old audience, aren't they?
1: yeah um i'd say for me bobby champagne was the one that was sh- shocking it everybody loves bobby champagne from side one of desert star and it's the one that people holler at us for uh to play at shows and sing along with and i get it now i mean i didn't i, I no way i could have called it but i get it now but
0: tell me the story of writing the song like you clearly didn't expect it to be a big huge crowd pleaser
1: Well, I met this uh, bartender um, when I was playing a couple of like, you know, chicken wing gigs and stuff. And she said her name was Bobby. And I said, that's a cool name. She's like, the other bartender said, well, she spells it B O B B I. I'm like, that's amazing. That's really cool. And then the other bartender said, you should ask her what her last name is. I'm like, all right, what's your last name? She's like, champagne. I'm like, your name is Bobby Champagne. That's like, that's the coolest name I've ever heard can I write a song about you? And she said, oh yeah, sure. But I didn't really have any sort of relationship with her. So I just wrote it about, you know, a fantasy. And then the the chorus of the song is, um, said, what's your name? She said, I'm Bobby Champagne. And then I say, like a moth to the flame, I fell into a fire. Now I was working on the song at a cottage party years ago, just before Desert Star was recorded. And uh, you know, it got late and there was moonshine and fire uh, pits and stuff like that. And I got up at like 3 a.m. or something and literally fell into the bonfire. <laughs> I mean, I got out. I got uh, Luckily, I was wearing a sweater and, you know, I got my hand burned because I had you know, to push myself out. But the next morning, I just thought about it. i like, I got the lyric. I know the lyric to the, the, the chorus. And then there it was. So it's a true story.
0: That is a great story man. <laughs> and, tell, have you ever played her the song? Oh yeah, yeah, she loves it. I would think so yeah yeah so that's uh, that's side one uh, or actually last track on side one <laughs> Let me roll it generally cited as a a pastiche of a John Lennon song with that that guitar riff and the slap echo on the vocal. What say you? Oh, I don't know. I think it's a
1: pretty darn cool rock song. And I don't think he's, you know, copying John Lennon. But uh, I can see why critics may say that because it does have the Lennon sort of feel where I think McCartney's a little bit more poppy. I think that McCartney's lyrics usually are a little bit more um, in tune. And this one just feels like fun to me, you know? It feels like they were in the studio, literally rolling it and and getting on with the the gig.
0: Well, and he the uh, let me roll it. He said years later was uh, it was a pot reference. You know, let me roll you one. Yeah, well, of, of course it <laughs> was. <laughs> <laughs> I my naively growing up in Oshawa in 1970, I didn't get that. I was in the 1970s, oh, no, I thought it was you know let me you know the the sort of British you know roll up, roll up. Hey, let me you know let me kind of play this to you. It was what Big Sugar does a cool cover of it. True to the original? Yeah. Pretty true to it, yeah. No. You should check yeah, it out. Yeah, I've got to look for that. Big sugar. Yeah, big I'm, sugar. I'm going yeah. to look for that. Uh, McCartney, for his part, says, it was not really a Lennon pastiche, although my use of Tape Echo did sound more like John than me, but Tape Echo was not John's exclusive territory. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was his comment on it uh, so a great riff it's built on that great oh, it's great great guitar riff now uh, listening to some of your songs uh off of avalanche a tune called learn to love uh and it, can you i i've got the i've got the riff written down sort of phonetically but you can probably do it better than i can do you oh, do you I remember the riff I from don't...
1: the song yeah i do but um it's a crazy, it's a crazy tune. I don't know how this one came to be, to be honest.
0: Um, well, it says, did, did song come or riff, riff, uh, riff, you know, riff after song or song first, riff second? I don't. I mean, lyrics
1: pro, on this, on Avalanche and the Ridge, I'll be honest, all the lyrics came first. Um, this song is about. Let me just. I'm going to pull it up for a quick second on our Spotify because. I don't actually remember the riff, but as soon as I hear it, I will. Um, this song's about, uh, almost about Black Lives Matter in a way. Uh, I gotta be honest. Um, because, and this is before that happened. Yeah, well
0: ahead of its time in that case.
1: I I was amazed at um, the, the fact that I grew up in, uh, you know, my formative years in high school would have been at, like... I went to North Toronto, had friends at Northern and stuff like that. And it was a pretty, pretty white neighborhood. Um, and there was really only five or six black boys that were in that sort of thing that I knew and went to school with. And what I marveled is that literally I'm one of the only ones standing. And, it, like, two of them were murdered. Um... Another one ended up uh, in jail. Another one um, died in a fire. Don't know really how that happened, but... Um, and then there's me, and then there's one other guy that I know, and he's okay. I mean, he's he's still about, and he was a musician, but I just found it so crazy uh, that I would... Grow up in sort of like a, a, a middle class neighborhood in Toronto where they don't, where they say that these things don't happen. And they did. You know, even even one of my mom's closest friends, uh, her son was murdered by the police. And this is all way back when. So Learn to Love is, is actually about what that. What
0: year did, did you write Learn to Love, Julian? Uh, the record would have come out.
1: Um, 2019. So Learn to Love would have been written
0: in maybe 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, well, well ahead of the. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah well, ahead, well ahead of it. It's my commentary on, on that, that, on feeling like
0: that. Which makes it more poignant. And because when I listened to it, the thing that jumped out at me was the riff. That's what caught me. Um, oh. and, and I heard riff first and didn't hone in on lyrics. Well, listen, listen to it next time. You'll hear oh, it. Will do. I absolutely yeah, will do. Let's, uh, let's flip her over to side two. and okay. uh, And a contemplative song. Uh, it's called Mamounia. Uh, the name comes from either the name of a hotel in Marrakesh where the McCartneys once stayed or it was the name of a house in Lagos. You can take your pick. It means safe haven in Arabic.
1: Mamounia. It's cool. I mean, it's, it's more, I think, where he's gone on a little bit of the trip where maybe Feli Kuti might have, you know, uh, a, a stake on his claim about going in and, and sort of taking the African uh, music and using it to his advantage. I'm not a huge, huge, big... I'm not a huge fan of this track, to be honest. It's one of the weaker ones on the record for me.
0: It was the first song they recorded in Lagos, uh, apparently while there was a big rainstorm taking place outside of the, the studio, so whether that was uh, an an inspiration or not. Uh, what, what gives it that African rhythm feel to you?
1: Uh, percussion, probably.
0: Yeah, I mean, lyrically,
1: uh, again, it does touch on... Freedom, I think, um, but yeah, percussion-wise, for sure, it's definitely what propels the song into sort of a more uh, cultural appropriation
0: <laughs> territory. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, rebirth, the rain, you know, rain washing okay. off you. Mm-hmm. Um, the guitar work reminds me a little bit of Mother Nature's son. Yeah, I can hear that too. You know, so sort of that.
1: Um, I, the guitar work on the song is something that I've I've never actually tried to do, but I, I I can imagine that it's not very easy to do.
0: It's 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 that very um well famously Donovan used it a lot, but that that finger picking style you hear a lot more a lot a lot of it on the White Album, uh, Mother yeah. Nature's Son, Dear Prudence, uh, Julia, bunch of songs on.
1: That. Certainly, when they I think when they met Dylan and really got into him. Uh, and probably their stake into folk music after that. Because, I mean, the Beatles really, in my personal opinion, looked towards black music for uh, their inspiration in the beginning. And then I think they were open to to other palettes of folk music, even though folk music is a very black thing as well. Uh, It's sort of a shared experience, I think, because of the country element of it. Um, But the finger-picking, for me, sort of comes after their meeting with Dylan as a folk artist. Mm -hmm. This thing and then also their their writing changes and I think they think oh we better be smarter about all this
0: well yeah infamously Dylan said to John Lennon at one point he says why don't you guys write about something <laughs> 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 oh, wow. and uh, and yeah that and that did change <laughs> that did you know, you can hear the Dylan influence uh, almost that's amazing what a comment I can see him doing it too yeah almost from help forward you know where he, he gets you know uh you can, I mean, John Lennon starts to write some very personal songs of In My Life on Rubber Soul uh, is, a, is a very personal song. Help is a very personal song covered up by a very jaunty melody that carries it along, but it's a, it's a cry for help. For sure it is. Um, so a very acoustic sounding song, Memunia, and then the, the, you know, the finger picking style and so on. The Ridge, is a very acoustic guitar-forward record. Uh, is That is what you set out to do, right?
1: It is. I mean, I write, I write most of my songs on an acoustic guitar. Uh, whether they're riff-based songs uh, or not, they usually come from me sitting in my living room on, on an acoustic guitar. I've always enjoyed finger-picking. I mean, uh, being a huge fan of Dylan, uh, being a huge fan... I, I don't think twice. You know, it was like one of my first... Um, exposures to really great finger picking, and I just was like, "What is that? That's so cool that this instrument could
0: be arpeggiated and 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 melodic at the same time, like a piano." Yeah, and and you you get that kind of picking in Mamounia for sure. But and, and, now, hmm. interesting thing about the Ridge, you say uh, what I read, you say it's a record intended to be listened to alone. Why is that? It's a very personal record
1: I mean these stories I worked very hard on character character building I worked very hard on a thematic thing was that I wanted it to be a hero story the whole thing, the bridge Um, but I wanted it to be a hero story that everybody could relate to because I didn't want it to be about um, I wanted it to be about everyday people and those everyday people happen to be people that I love People in my family, like the ridge, the song itself, talks about my my time out west, and really is focusing on my step grandmother, who I loved very much, and you know, taught me a lot. I mean, it's an interesting thing when I say when people ask why did you use the word manure in a song, I said, well, that's what happened, dude. Like, what, and so I really focused on actually, and I had a, a meeting with my friend who is a songwriter too, and he's like, had, what were you doing? I was like, I was actually just trying to tell the story. I wasn't trying to f- use words to flash people or, or draw them in. I was actually just, if you think about it, I wanted to be the person sitting on a bench, like Forrest Gump, telling the story to someone just the way it was. Or being that old guy, you know, talking to his grandkid. Uh, sitting on the porch saying, Well, you, this is how this went. And you know, not ever using word or wordplay to confuse anybody or, or metaphors. To, there's hardly any. If you think about the whole record, there's hardly a metaphor to, to really pull at. There's one song that, that does it. Uh, Over the Moon would be uh, Riff with them. But every other song on the record, there is. Hardly even a metaphor, like there may be maybe one metaphor in human race where I said, uh, watching you go through so much pain isn't easy, and that's why uh, it always leaves awake.
0: And troubadour is a beautiful cut as well. Thank you.
1: That's me uh, as a little kid trying to get across the u s
0: and it, it's it is such I'm repeating myself, but it it's such a, a great record. Uh, And if you like, off of this album, if you like songs like Bluebird, Mamounia, very acoustic, um, gentle-sounding, you'll love this record. It's it's a great record. It's called The Ridge. Thanks, man. Uh, So let's go to track two on side two, No Words, which is the first Denny Lane, Paul McCartney co-write on a Wings release.
1: No words. Well, this, this is a funny song for me. It's like lyrically, I think it's brilliant. Um, but again, this this one, pull, like I feel the energy on this this particular track pulls me down a bit. Um, which is I've never side side two to this record has always been the side that I've had the hardest time getting into. I've tried to. Um, figure out how to play these songs um and like McCartney does they're, they're, he's he gets tricky in here i think his is is in my personal opinion his his writing on side 2 is more of an experimentation than anything else
0: uh, before this yeah in what in his in songwriting or his playing
1: in his playing for sure I believe that it is in his songwriting as well. Um, he, for me, um, felt this. This side feels a little, more, little, little more, little more in, inside than outside. Where the first side feels like that escape is 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 immediate. It's almost as if this is like pulling in to uh, his more int- introspective side
0: i don't know i mean certainly yeah i mean certainly mamounia the first cut on side two i think does that i think it, it pulls you in a little certainly when you contrast it with side one where you come out like band on the run big start yeah. jet great rocker and then into bluebird beautiful song and then and then it, but yeah uh, and then no words probably a little different because it's a co-write with denny lane um now it was, I'll t- it was hell trying to find credits for all of your records uh, because it's it's just not like that anymore. You know, you, it's they used to, for a lot of the old records. They're easy to find, but so so it's hard for me to say definitively whether you've done a lot of co-writing. Have you got to go? No,
1: no. Uh, they're just con- their neighborhood kids are just at the door. Sorry.
0: No worries, man. All right, we're back. All right. Have fun. Um, Okay, so you're just getting back to no words. So it's it's a Denny Lane, Paul McCartney co-write. And then... For his part, Danny Lane has said, writing with Paul wasn't a chore, nothing negative. He'd come up with an idea, and so would I. I wasn't as prolific, but that's beside the point. I wasn't thinking at the time I had bits, but he was always encouraging me to put bits together, and so we did, and that became No Words, my song on Band on the Run. Um, Do you do a lot of co-writing? Yes, I do, actually. I love
1: co-writing. I didn't uh, for the first little while, because I I always thought that I had to do everything but slowly stagger crossing members would start uh, popping in ideas um, and then from there I've was one of my favorite writing partners actually two of my favorite writing partners are Tyler Ellis he's a, a great uh, singer-songwriter from here in Toronto and then the poet Robert Priest they're really good friends of mine we have a great time writing songs together i've been i've, I've done something called Wolf Den it's like an indigenous collective and uh, Was mentoring some musicians and and artists there, and we came up with some great songs. I'll do it anytime I get a chance. I always find that though, uh, like Denny's saying, it's like you got to be positive and uh, you got to be open to ideas. And uh, if you don't have something going within in a two-hour window, I'm always the the person that says it's time to walk away. Um. It doesn't mean that you can't write with the same person another time, but if there's no idea that is working and it's not flowing, then there's no sense in pushing and forcing anything. Walk away, call the same person back in a couple weeks and say, "Hey, let's try again." Because the wind blows in certain directions. I feel when it, when you're t- when you're thinking about songs. Um, and once you find an idea that you can latch on to, that's what, it, it, like I said earlier in this interview, it's like I, I trust the song and I, and I follow the song. So once you latch onto an idea, I feel like you can go that way. McCartney's probably really good at that, by the way. Right. Uh, well, we actually know he is. But um, the other thing about it is that Jay Bennett used to say this to me. He's like, this is about production and songwriting. He says, it's really hard to know when you've got a great idea but it's really uh, apparent
0: when something sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Put that on the wall of every recording studio, right? (laughs) I don't know if we
1: got a good idea, but you know what? That sucks. And everybody can agree on something that sucks because...
0: Be open and, and and explore and try, and then you'll know. Well, going back to your new record, The Ridge, uh, co-write on there with Robert Priest, who you mentioned. Love Enough is is the name of the uh, is the name of the song. Tell me about how that came about.
1: Well, Robert had you know Robert sends me poems all the time, and uh, sometimes what we'll do with each other is like I'll send him a line of something like that I just thought of, or he'll do the same, uh, and we challenge each other to run with it. So it's like I mean I have pieces of paper here all over the place that I just write things down and then all of a sudden I'll say you know can I do this or, or can Robert run with it uh, and come up with another idea I'll, I'll try to find one okay let's see this is stuff that wouldn't be published at all all right
0: so we, we may be getting uh, that we may be getting something uh, in on the ground floor here folks
1: you might um, This was a line, and I wrote this, and then, where are we going? But yeah, so going back to that song, the idea of that song was uh, about a relationship, and I used the relationship of uh, my parents and my grandparents. Uh, I'd found letters from my grandfather written to my grandmother and kept going over them uh, and thought, wow, isn't that... Isn't that lovely? He actually really loves her. <laughs> you know, cause he, back then people didn't treat each other like that. He's always, you know... But anyway, apparently he did. He, he, he dug her. <laughs> and so I started to go back to the, the poem that Robert had sent me and, and, and fish out what I, I could and, uh, and did. I mean, here's a line. Um, and it, She's a strong woman but abusive. He was a strong man, but elusive. It's usually the other way around. And so I would send that to Robert, and he'd go go with it, or or vice versa. And I'm just trying to tell stories properly. (laughs) You don't know what that's about, and maybe the the narrative, I can fill it in, but eventually I will,
0: of course. I mean, famously, the Lennon-McCartney dynamic, you had, you know, McCartney you know, uh, I got to admit it's getting better. And then Lenin comes in and goes, it couldn't get much worse. Right. So you had that real kind of yin and yang positivity and then the sort of Lenin cynicism or different angle. When you work with somebody, do you like to find somebody who is the opposite of what you are either musically or lyrically? Mm. Doesn't matter to me actually. I just I, I think uh, because
1: we're all different people. Uh, it's going to be different anyway, you know. I certainly don't love writing with cyn- cynical people, um, but sometimes you need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So i clearly worked in the Lennon McCartney dynamic. Uh, it clearly worked. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to uh, Second Side, track three, and this comes back to the old Helen Wheels uh, issue. On the U.S. version, and now the version proper, it is Helen Wheels. On the original version, the record did not include Helen Wheels. And I I mentioned earlier, McCartney didn't want to have any singles from the album, much the way the Beatles used to do it. And then a guy named Al Corey from Capitol Records at the time said... Al Corey, yeah. the guy who made it you happen. You got to do this, man, and it did. It became a, a huge, huge seller, and number one album. Uh, and the song is about their Land Rover, uh, which they called Hell on Wheels, and it, he just changed it around to Hell on Wheels. Uh, trusted vehicle that got us around Scotland, takes us up to the Shetland Islands, down to London. The song starts off in Glasgow. Uh, it's a British road song, which mm-hmm. you don't get many of.
1: I think it's one of the stronger tracks on the record, and it pulls side two into uh, the frame of mind that I believe was in the first side. It feels as if that sort of, um, again, uh, the, the whole record, I mean, obviously, I mean, the title, Band on the Run, it's about escaping, but uh, a British road track, I mean, what is that exactly? Is there, what, what else would be considered a British road track? I've never heard that.
0: Well, i uh, uh, oh, sorry, road trip. Yeah, road yeah, trip. Road. Oh, so oh. you know, the, many songs written about Route sixty six. You know, the famous road right, okay, trip in the okay. U.S. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot's written a few about driving across Canada. Uh, not many British. Highway. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, I didn't realize that there was not many British road trip songs. I guess you don't get often go drive on the countryside in Britain. I've never really done that, but uh, I think that why wouldn't you know what the difference is between maybe the U.S. and, and us in Britain is that I feel um, that here in North America there was more of a folklore sort of thing going on which created these songs. You know, you had uh, troubadours, you had, you know, bluesmen going across the highways to, to the next joint. And I don't know if you got got that in Britain. So this particular song feels like home.
0: Yeah, and it's it's the route that he used to take uh, driving from his place in Scotland down. to The song starts off in Glasgow, goes past Carlisle, goes to Kendall, Liverpool, Birmingham, and then into London. It's the route coming down from our Scottish farm to London. So it's really the story of a trip down, little images along the way. Liverpool is on the west coast of England, so that's all that that means. Mm -hmm. uh,
1: Yeah, I like this. I like this track a lot because of that, and I like the the fact. I mean, listen to the ballad of a young troubadour. It's a story of of, of traveling. It's a story, and I think that musicians, um, myself, I love that sort of Jack Kerouac sort of way of uh, telling.
0: A, a, a tale about going for a trip and it was a big cut it was a it was a, intended to be a standalone single it was of a top 10 record and uh, again Al Cory famously said put it on the album and he did and that helped to drive it and then jet pushed it over the top and then banned on the run sure. even Ooh. over top further so now we come to the penultimate cut on side two and this is again a McCartney snippets of songs put together uh, to make A wonderful picture of a song, an unusual one, Picasso's last words. Before he went, he bade us well and said good night to us all. Drink to me,
1: drink to my health. You know I. I think it's super cool. Um, and because of that, and I, I mean, I read rumors about um, Paul speaking to, uh, was it Dustin Hoffman? Yes. About this track
0: and about uh, the artist's last words. The story of the song is he was in Jamaica on holiday. Dustin Hoffman was there shooting Papillon. Uh, Great movie. Yeah, fantastic movie. And we, uh, he and Linda, were invited to visit the set, and Dustin asked us back to the house for dinner. He was uh, asking me how I write songs, and I explained that I just make them up. And he said, can you make up a song about anything? And I wasn't sure, but he pulled out a copy of Time magazine, pointed to an article, and said, could you write a song about this? And it was a quote from Picasso from the last night of his life. Apparently, he'd said to friends, drink to me, drink to my health. You know, I can't drink anymore. And then he went to bed and he died in his sleep. So I picked up the guitar and started to strum and sing, drink to me, drink to my health. And Dustin was shouting to his wife, he's doing it. He's doing it. Come and listen and it's something that comes no way. Uh, yeah he says it's something that comes naturally to me but but he was blown away by it and that song became Picasso's last words and then the great quote from Dustin Hoffman Julian uh, Dustin said in a later interview he was asked about that anecdote and he said it's right under childbirth in terms of great events in my life
1: <laughs> <laughs> <What>? come on
0: <laughs> so that's amazing. So, oh my God! So, what God. kind of context does that put this song into for you?
1: <laughs> well, that's so crazy. I mean, I don't, I I love the uh, that story. That story. I'd, I hadn't heard that. I just knew that. It, I, what I had heard was that Dustin Hoffman sort of egged him on to write it about Picasso's last words. I didn't know that he wrote it right in front of him. Uh, that's absolutely astonishing, and it makes you feel like. You know what, a, a, it makes you feel like a kid because I think kids, are a, they have this ability and, and it makes me feel like McCartney has this giant child inside him because as you get to be an adult, I've found uh, that it's harder to be asked things on command. Like you, I, I find like, oh, I don't know. I got to think about this for a bit, um, but it sounds like I'd, I'd like to be challenged to just pick up and, and write something and, and, and have somebody of that stature you know do it it's just it's just so comical and so you know
0: surreal and then it's it's interesting the way it came together because he says we thought we'd do this Picasso number and we started off doing it straight. And then we thought Picasso was kind of far out in his pictures. He'd done all different kinds of things, fragmented cubism and the whole bit. So I thought it would be nice to get a track a bit like that, put it through different moods, cut it up, edit it, mm-hmm. and mess around with it. And that's exactly it changed. That's exactly yeah, what you do. like it changes yeah. so many times, doesn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. it's very cool. It's it's uh, it's his uh, it's his alluding to uh, you know Abbey Road it's his, it's like the the day in the life but this one is so bizarre that, uh, that it's it, it's just a lot of fun.
0: You get you get snippets of Mrs. Vanderbilt and Jet that come back in mm-hmm. with a different tempo. Jet- Uh, you get the, the French voice, who's reading uh, a tourist audio guide, is, is all it is. You get the bassoon and the clarinet.
1: The interesting thing, um, and he, because of that, I think that he's one of the first artists that I can remember who goes back and starts alluding to previous songs from the same record, or in, in, in the song itself. I remember going back to Jay Bennett and and the Wilco guys and the way they started to produce. I mean, he never admitted this to me, but I'm sure, I mean, he was a big Beatles fan, so it obviously had to have some sort of uh, weight. But he would often, and if you go back and listen to Wilco records, you'll hear it too. You'll find that there's a riff within one of the songs that will start to recur and elude itself back through the entire song, if not the entire record. Yeah, and so I've, I started doing that with last summer when we were famous, um, because that was the record he produced, and, and this 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 particular song is a huge example of, of of wrapping it up in 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 a term of like, remember this, remember this, remember this riff that you liked so much that you had to go back and re. Uh, replay the song before it was over. Well, here it is again.
0: Oh, and it's yeah, and he does that in this song, and then the next song we're going to talk about. Like he's and and they they it's, did it on on Pepper, and uh, it's it's a a cool thing. Now, it's cool. Uh, now here's a segue for you. We're talking about Picasso and art, but uh, in one interview uh, I saw that I assume was in your home, there was some cool stuff on the wall. I didn't see any Picassos um but uh, there was a ray charles portrait and then i saw yeah, i saw some indigenous art uh, and mm-hmm. you can tell a lot about people sometimes from the art they put on the wall so tell me about that what i mean r- tell me about why ray charles is up there and tell me about the indigenous art that's on the wall
1: sure um a lot of the indigenous stuff on the wall is actually from my family um that's in the back corner, that's my grandfather's drum. On the wall over here is my aunt's drum. They've since left us, but they're still with us. Um, this particular piece on the wall is my breast plate piece. That was—it's all um, buffalo bone. And uh, there's Dizzy Gillespie on the wall blowing bubbles. Ray Charles, yeah, I think he's uh, Ray Charles is one of the people I think is an absolute musical genius. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, I've got some marceaux on the wall as well. I've got a nice quote uh, that my grand- grandfather gave me, uh, and the quote is, uh, nothing is as strong as real strength, nothing is as gentle as real strength, nothing is as strong as gentleness. Um, so, things like that. We're part of the wolf clan and the turtle clan, so I have a lot of pictures of wolves and turtles. Uh, and that's on my indigenous side, which is my mom's side of the family. Um,
0: then there's African art
1: from you know, from
0: my, my, my other side of the family as well. I saw the, um, I saw the Ray Charles, the Ray Charles one up on the wall and that's where, that's where I sort of went. I wonder if you're ever sitting there writing and you look up at old Ray and go, what would Ray, what, what chord sequence would Ray put in here right now? Oh man, you can't, you don't even know the guy.
1: It, 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 Ray's one of my favorites. I mean, it's unbelievable what that man did. <laughs> I mean, he, he may not have been the nicest guy, but who cares? He was amazing
0: making music. Well, giant. I mean, giant. he's giant. He's, uh, yeah, I mean. That voice, man. Yeah. But I like, I
1: like a lot. jazz, is, uh, blues, blues and jazz. I grew up with, with that. You know, my grandfather personally did not like the Beatles. He liked the Beatles better than the Rolling Stones because he thought, he thought eventually they got something right, that they started to actually write songs. Um, but he didn't like it because he felt they were stealing black music, both those bands. He just,
0: he thought they were like Justin Bieber. But that's, I mean, that's, I mean, you go back to Elvis. Like Elvis was, sure, Elvis, he, he Elvis was doing black music for white people. Yeah, he, they didn't like Elvis. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> 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 but, you know, but, but, you know, so Elvis begat all of that. And then uh, John Lennon has said famously, without it, no Elvis, no Beatles. You know, Elvis was like their um, but it, it, you know, you talk about, um, that kind of influence and I mean, the, the, the black girl bands, the harmonies oh, that yeah. the Beatles did as, I mean, they did a ton of cover tunes back in their, their stage act in Hamburg. Um, uh, and they, they sang it like the girl group sang it. So clearly like huge, huge influence. Huge influence. But then again,
1: like Jay Bennett had said, you can try to emulate somebody, but you'll never sound like them.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's going to have your twist on it, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So last cut on the album, uh, and uh, it, it it does come back to what you talked about, uh, sort of wrapping things up and, and putting in hints, but it's 1985, uh, massive piano-driven, and McCartney says, with a lot of songs I do, the first line is it. It's all in the first line, and then you have to go on and write the second line. Ah! He said he'd walked around for quite a while. No one ever left alive in 1985. He said, that's all I had of this song for months. Wow.
1: Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, I think it's the hardest thing is coming up with the next line. You're, he's right, actually. That's, that's what he talks about. This song, uh, is a, it's the last two songs, this one and, and, and Picasso, are the uh, a beautiful way to wrap this thing up. Um, and... I'm just trying to think about why, and the reason I think is because it goes back to the theme from the very top of the of the record. It just I don't I, I don't love the word escapism. I like freedom better, but um, it feels like this particular track is one that uh, he. I don't know much about his process in writing this particular track because I didn't know that. Um, And I think that when it comes down to it, McCartney is sort of leaving this one alone. And and what I mean by that is as as a writer, sometimes you're just tired and it's time to put something to bed and check out. And move on. Let yourself off the hook. And I feel like he does that here.
0: And by that, just to pull on that thread a little, just, so just let the tune flow out of you.
1: Um, how do I? Okay, yeah, I guess, but no, not entirely. What I'm what I, what I mean, like wrap it up. It's not like a, it's not like a cop out. Sorry, Paul. That's not that's not what I mean. Um, it's more of like, in this particular instance, it feels like he's like I've I've done it. I did it. This is what I can hang my hat on, and I can go. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: that clarifies a little bit more. Does for me. Okay. Cool. And and I mean it and it's just it's like just a fantastic orchestration from Tony Visconti, uh, fifty piece orchestra, and then to what you referred to before, you get the little reprise of Band on the Run. Right. right at the end. I mean, I love
1: and I love that riff. It's my favorite <laughs> riff. It's actually my favorite riff of his entirely. The band and the run riff. It is, yeah. yeah. I wish I had written it. But yeah, the orchestration's great. I mean, the fact... I've never used any... um, What is it? Orchestration. I've never used any woodwinds on anything that I've ever done. I've wanted to. And and it's such a prevalent thing in the the 70s Um, on this particular record, on, uh, I guess, like Beatles records. like day in the life it comes in um it's really prevalent in motown and soul stuff at the time
0: yeah a well, ton of uh, yeah pink floyd uses it like it all it was yeah it was a thing um for, for sure and
1: it's it's, it's 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 an expensive thing to do but what it does is i i find um have you ever noticed that in some of the songs that you like there's like a droning noise in it like a, a good example of that would be um this is actually a good example, but it's like one note almost sort of takes you to the, the, the beginning to the end of the song. You never really notice that you're hearing it, and an orchestra in this particular sense does that. Um, a, a song that, it do, that doesn't have an orchestra that does it would be like Street Fighting Man by The Stones. For some reason, there's this really distorted ring throughout the whole song, and it might be like one note on Keith's guitar string, but it carries you from the opening set of the song to the end of it. And an orchestra, and for some reason, that's a really calming sound to to hear that one note go throughout the whole thing and I think that that maybe that's why this one feels like it wraps it up really well is that the orchestra achieves that for you. it soothes you into like this one the space I don't know. Do you know, have you ever heard that in songs? Yeah, it,
0: it, I mean, I would describe it as a pad, but, uh, you know, there, there is. Okay, yeah, okay, a pad would be. It's okay. like a pad under the song, and it's, it's you know, done a lot with synthesizers. Uh, but, but, sure. but yeah, it's just like whether it's a, you know, I guess it's whether it's an orchestra holding the same note, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know either, but I, fe- you feel Yeah, it. and you, you, you do feel it in this song. Um, it, yeah. you know especially the lat when it goes towards the crescendo and the bam 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 yeah and then the band <laughs> in the run kind of rings in right and and as you said it just it just it just there's a little bow and i've just wrapped it up and almost like the way they do with sergeant pepper at the end uh, oh, yeah I, I hear that yeah you know where it's the, the big crescendo big piano note bam and it kind of fades then... fades out you know and, and just before they start a day in a life they've the the reprise of Sgt. peppers you know hey we're right. we're back I, here when, you know it's, no, it's it's a it's really interesting it's a it's a, it's a it's a great record for me uh it just all it just all kind of fits uh the song sequence the wrap-up at the end and it, as an artist I want to ask you have you done your band on the run or will you do a band on the run I will never do a band on the run I'm
1: I don't know I won't I'll just do what I do and hope for the best. The thing is, like, I want to be cogn- like, cognizant of, of what I'm doing, but I'm never going to ever, you know, try to do something like this. I'll, I'd like to just enjoy it. I'd like to look at my uh, body of work as a time capsule for my own life. And for anybody who's following it, uh, they'll know. But um, the next thing I do, I don't know what it is yet. I haven't figured that out. I know that this is an interesting time in music too, which uh, people aren't really putting out records. Um, certainly pop people aren't. But do you want to is the next question. Because I find that the listeners aren't as attentive to to, to an entire body of work. Uh, and that's discouraging for me as a writer um i said to a friend the other day i think the only time i'll ever put out another album is if i have a cons- cohesive uh, statement that i want to make like the ridge has this cohesive statement it was thought out from from top to bottom i left some songs out of it i mean there are songs that were recorded that i left on it just because i didn't feel it was working with the, the flow um and maybe I'll release those later, I don't know, but I think unless I come up with a theme that really is one statement, I don't know if I'll release records
0: just because of the time we're in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how, how things circle around because back around the time when the Beatles started, the thing was the single. It was all about singles, yeah, yeah, and, sure. and then the Beatles helped to change that with with Sergeant yep. Pepper, the White Album, Abbey Road, um, and it's, those are those are cohesive yeah, statements. Exactly, it, and and now it's it's almost come back because of the digitization of music, uh, where you can go on this little device that you have in your pocket and go, oh, I like that song, you know, I want to stream that song, I want to download that song, and you're so right. It's it's, I think the the music consumer now doesn't go. I wanna sit and listen to that album. I know, they don't. Yeah. I'm not sure that's good. I'm not sure that's good either because
1: I love sitting down and listening to albums. Um, And I'm trying to, we play vinyl in my house for the most part um, because I want my daughter to be like, that's a cool album. (laughs) Yeah, yep. (laughs) But when we get into the car, she's like, can I have your phone? I wanna listen to something on Spotify. And then it's like, You know, can you listen to the whole song, please? We've listened to the same song.
0: Seven times without even getting to the end of it. Now here, I mean, now this interview is coming full soon because we started off talking about kids just wanting to listen to the first, you know, forty seconds of a song and listen to that over and over again. God, I know you love this too, but like, can we listen to the whole thing, maybe? All right, Julian, I got a couple of factoids here to throw in. Uh, you can you can jump in if you want, and then I want to get your final thoughts on uh, on this masterpiece uh, band and the run. But sure. uh, global sales of over eight point six million records uh, topped the billboard charts three times during 1974 number two record in the uk at the year-end charts it was the top selling lp for emi in the uk for the 70s uh, mm-hmm. won a grammy uh, in 1974 for best engineered non-classical recording jeff emmerich former beatles engineer was the the engineer for that other big music that year on the album charts don't mess around with jim by jim croce Oh, I love Caribou it. by Elton John. Uh, the Sting soundtrack album. Uh, Planet Waves by Dylan and the Band. Uh, mm-hmm. 461 Ocean Boulevard by Clapton. And Sundown by Gordon Lightfoot was a big record that year. No way. Yeah. And then the, uh, the famous cover... Was shot by Clive Aerosmith, a Welsh photographer the Beatles had known since their Liverpool days, uh, and they got him to shoot it. It was shot in uh, Osterley Park in Hounslow, London. I used to live uh, pretty close to there. Actually, you did? Yeah, I did. Um, and in the photo left to right on the front, uh, you have going left to right. If you get the album cover in front of you, the guy in the extreme left is Michael Parkinson, a UK talk show host, TV talk show host. Then you get Kenny Lynch, who's a British singer and entertainer, and he was the first person to release a cover version of a Lennon McCartney song. He, he did a cover version of Misery in 1963, and here he is 10 years later on the album cover. <clears throat> then you get Paul. Then just above Paul is James Coburn, the actor. Then you go back down. Uh-huh. Bald guy with the beard is Clement Freud, uh, a broadcaster, writer, and politician, the grandson of Sigmund Freud. Uh, he has his hand on Linda's shoulder. Then you go back up, and it's the actor Christopher Lee, And then back down and kneeling is Denny Lane. And then back up again, the extreme right is a Liverpool-born WBC light heavyweight world champion from 1974 to 78, a guy named John Conta. And uh, it was quite an elaborate package. Then you, You had a poster inside with Polaroids taken in the studio in Lagos. Uh, yeah, I've never seen the original. Yeah, a cardboard sleeve that you pulled out that the record was in, a picture of Paul and Linda with the, and Denny with a bunch of local kids, and then the lyrics were on the other side. So that was Band on the Run. I remember buying it. Did you have it? I did. I, I, bought, I was... Uh, i would have been 12 years old when it came out and i remember getting it in the record department at eaton's in oshawa and being, being wow. very excited i put the poster on my wall and that was the album of the summer for 1974 for me did, did, Do you remember getting it as a new album i never got it as a new album i, I got it at uh, like an, a used
1: record shop on vinyl I would have had it. I had it on tape, but when I got it on tape, it was just like the the, there was no liner notes or anything like that. It was just the insert and then the tape, and then we would play it in the car. But um, yeah, I don't. I've never seen the actual original version of the record. Yeah, and
0: and I was a nerd too because I uh, I just that's why I miss vinyl records because I would pour through. I could tell you every second engineer on on a you know a beatles record nice. or a steely dan album or uh, uh, anything like that i just i just love reading the notes and and knowing the people who contributed behind the scenes
1: me too i like that about vinyl i mean you get to sit there and it's almost a little novella you know it's cool so
0: my friend uh, it's been a pleasure what are your final thoughts on just looking back and our conversation the last uh, hour or so on 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 band on the run and what well, you've enlightened me on
1: on so many uh, uh, topics of the uh, and uh, of the songs that I, I was not aware of. Um, so thank you for that, and thanks for the conversation. It's great to get to know you. Um, this is my favorite record by McCartney, other than I mean, obviously, Ram's great, um, but this one is the, the the one that I have always gone to. I enjoyed it from the very moment I heard it. It was for me. Um, I always thought it was the first one after the Beatles um, growing up because it was the first one I'd heard, really. But I, I obviously I, I learned a bit about that as time went, went on. But um, it's a hard thing because I, I sometimes on, on some days I go and I think Paul's the better Beatle. And then some days I go and I'm like, John's the better Beatle. And then most days I just go, wow, what a, what a gift. Uh, these two guys are, and the rest of them for that matter. S- same with George and, and, and Ringo. But from a pop sensibility, which I like to write from mostly, I side with this as, as a record that really has helped me um, with arrangements, um, with the eclecticness of the record. I, en- and I enjoy because I feel that's part of what I do. and. Um, the honesty of, of the of the record too. the the, the theme the, the way that that theme strings along through the whole thing is something that I've tried to do in my career. I mean producers have said you need to find a common thread. If you can't find the common thread you're dead. So it's cool
0: that he's been able to do that. I mean John d- does it but in, in a totally different way. Hey, I biggest thing you have in common with paul mccartney to me is that like mccartney you can't be put in a box you my, okay. my my quick perusal of your catalog uh is there were just so many different flavors in there and that's exactly what you get if you look through paul mccartney's catalog yeah for you sure you get everything for sure you get everything
1: him and him and paul simon <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, didn't know, I also didn't know that uh, I, I, one of my favorite songwriters, too. Um, actually two of them, it's an interesting year then, uh, Gordon Lightfoot and Jim Crochet, sitting alongside Paul McCartney. Obviously, that's pretty
0: dope. Yeah. I love those two. I love all three of them, actually. Julian, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back and talk about another record one day, but I uh, really enjoyed our conversation. You too, man. Thank you so much. So I will just remind you, once again, you can check out Julian's extensive back catalog of uh, solo material, Julian Taylor Band stuff, and uh, stuff he did with the band called Staggered Crossing. You can find information on all of that at his website, which is... JulianTaylorMusic.ca That's JulianTaylorMusic.ca You can find him on Twitter at JTaylorBand and Facebook if you do a search under Julian Taylor Musician. You can find back episodes of this podcast if you go to the podcast website which is RomyCast.com R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T RomyCast.com More information about me and each and every episode that we have done So far, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore Romycast the underscore Romycast and there's also a Facebook group page if you do a search on Facebook for the Walrus was Paul podcast ask to join and I'll sort that out I'm going to put some links up on Twitter as well as on the Facebook group page to some of Julian's work and a few of the things that we talked about in this episode of the Walrus was Paul and one final reminder if you would like to see your way clear to make a donation to keep the podcast commercial free you can do that at the website uh, that is romicast.com. Uh, any amount would be much appreciated uh, that does it for this week's episode be sure to join us for the next episode it's going to be a lot of fun uh, a couple of guys from the fraser daily band alec fraser and mike daly uh, great guys to talk to Great players, they know their music, and they know their Beatles, and we will be diving in-depth into the Beatles' first ever release, Please, Please Me. That's next time on The Walrus Roosevelt. Ball. Take care. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I to play a guitar.
1: Is he dead? Sit you down,
0: Father. Rescue. Take 12. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in
1: here, Father? No, oh, that's a way. wax. Just take 3. The Mr. John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want. to do
0: what we It's
1: not bad that one keep that one market fab